This is episode 25 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ebony Rio about the role of the brain in tendon pain. So thank you for letting us interview you today. Uh, can we start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you very much. My name's Ebony Rio. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at La Trobe University, um, but a physiotherapist by trade. And what are your main areas of research? My main areas of research, I'm fascinated with pain. I'm fascinated with exercise and so bringing together neuroscience with physiotherapy rehabilitation. So trying to take some different domains and bring them together rather than investigate these things in isolation because you know we're very complex human beings. I know one of the areas you look at is tendon pain. Yes. So can you describe how the brain is involved with tendon pain and rehab? Yeah, great question. So as we know, pain is made up of lots of different inputs and in tendon pain, it appears that a big input is the, the nociceptive contribution. So the contribution um, from the tendon. And that's because clinically, the pain remains very localized to the tendon, regardless of length of time of symptoms. And also it's intimately linked with load. So we know that all pain is an output and we've got all these other um, modifiers, but we know that this driver is a huge contribution to the, the clinical picture. So I was interested in looking at that clinical presentation, but also comparing it to another clinical presentation like diffuse knee pain. So I looked at patellar tendinopathy, I looked at diffuse anterior knee pain, so patellofemoral joint pain, and I also looked at control athletes. So athletes that were um, jumping athletes, but they had no pain or pathology. And my question was, does the brain or the motor cortex and those projections kind of care whether or not the pain is localized or diffuse? So the way I did that was to use some equipment called transcranial magnetic stimulation, and that really probes our motor cortex. And you can look at the, the drive to the muscle. So that's your brake and your accelerator. So your, your amount of inhibition and your amount of acceleration, and it's a balance. And what we found is that it was profoundly different in people that had localized pain and people that had diffuse pain. And I found that fascinating. It was the first um, study of my PhD. My hypothesis was completely wrong, but it completely changed the whole path of my PhD because I could look at the, the profile of people with patellar tendon pain and huge amounts of excitability and inhibition, this, this altered kind of profile and say, well, as physiotherapists, do we do enough to address the motor cortex or address the drive to the muscle? So as physiotherapists, how can we address that? Good question. So we know that exercise is so important in musculoskeletal pain, and that's very true in tendon pain. Tendon pain is no different. So we need to incorporate exercise as part of our rehabilitation. That's a really important way to get people, you know, moving, get them active. It's important for the tendon and the muscle. We know that that's best practice, but 
if you just do exercise, if you go off to the gym and you do a self-paced exercise, which is what we prescribe as physios, you'll get changes to the tendon and the muscle and you'll get stronger because you'll get substrate changes, but you don't change that drive to the muscle. You don't see a motor cortex change. So what we need to do is incorporate some of these strategies from neuroscience into our exercise-based rehabilitation. And a really simple one is something like the metronome. So if you use a metronome to pace your strength training activity, what you get are the changes that you want at a muscle and tendon level, but you also get the changes to your motor cortex, your brake and your accelerator, because it, it fires up all these little interneurons between different parts of your brain, your auditory cortex and your motor cortex, your frontal lobe, because you're focusing. So you're kind of firing up the whole brain and involving the whole brain in your rehabilitation to repace that movement. And why use those auditory cues? Why not any visual cues? Good question. So we are investigating that and we're comparing um, some different strategies. One of the things that seems to be important in the neuroscience literature is that the auditory cues are rhythmic and they're actually quite predictable. So it's not like you're waiting for the cue and then responding, you're almost anticipating it. And so even though the visual cortex has these huge projections to the motor cortex, there's a level of processing and there's a bit of a delay. So the auditory cues appear to be very effective because they're, they're rhythmic and they're, they're anticipated as opposed to you responding to them in the way that you do with a visual cue. Having said that, what we're playing around with is combining visual and auditory cues. So we have a video of someone doing the exercise so that you're actually pacing it like a skill, but you're also listening to the auditory instructions um, in your native tongue, because we know that listening to the frequency of someone's voice is important. And we also have the metronome. So we're trying to actually monopolize on as many of those things as we can, the auditory and visual cues. How can you use that metronome clinically with patients when you are doing that strength training? So we have a couple of different strategies. Sometimes we get the patient to go home and make their own um, little video or little audio cue. You can get free metronome apps. And when I did the first study, that's all I used was a free metronome app on one iPhone and then the voice recorder on the other iPhone. And I just made my own little recording. So people can make their own and then you can tailor it to exactly what you're giving your patient. The Australian Ballet, for example, they have their athletes listen to the metronome as they go up and down stairs and they increase the pace of that activity up to the speed of Petit Allegro and then they know that their athletes are ready to go back into a modified class. So you can really tailor it as a physio depending on the person in front of you and just being a little bit creative, I think. So with patients, are you starting with the slower speed and then gradually increasing that as they're able to load their tendon more? Good question. We're using it in our early stages of rehabilitation, so our strength phase, and we're using 60 beats per minute, and that's based on the fact that that frequency fires up both sides of the brain. So every decision we made in our TNT study was actually based on some sort of um, neuroscience or tendon or muscle question or something we could find in the literature. It was all evidence-based, but it was kind of put together. So we start at 60 beats per minute and we have a slightly longer eccentric phase. So if I could give you an example of the leg extension, we might do three seconds up, but four seconds down. 
So a slightly longer eccentric phase actually fires up your frontal lobe because you've got to um, do more planning with the movement. So within that 60 beats, um, there's a concentric and eccentric phase. Then we've not been using the metronome at a faster pace with our athletes because we see a lot of runners and there's good evidence that the faster runners don't do well when you pace their motor pattern. But the ballet and some of these um, sports that are used to having those auditory cues, it's very, very appropriate. So I think there's going to be no one size fits all, but we don't do faster strength training with it. We stick to 60 beats per minute. So you spoke a bit about the concentric and eccentric phases of this exercise. Yeah. What rehab phases do you feel are necessary to restore a tendon to full function? So we break our rehabilitation into four phases and this is a very um, clinical approach and, and based on first principles, what can the person do and what do they need to be able to do in that athletic domain. That sort of structure is really hard to look at in research because it's so individual and that's why people tend to look at an individual program like an eccentric protocol where you can provide two groups a recipe. We don't use a recipe in rehab. It's all about what does the person have, what do they need to be able to do. And our four phases are an isometric phase to reduce pain um, that we find very beneficial in our people with tendon pain. We have some research in the patella tendon and we use that in the short term to bring their pain down. At the same time, we also borrow from our neuroscience. So we use cross-education. So if someone had um, patella tendon pain, they would get an isometric exercise for their affected quad, but we would get going on their other side. Heavy and slow, we would be doing their calf, you know, seated and standing their whole rehabilitation starts because if we just isolate out that one muscle, they can't put it together in an athletic way. They can't distribute the force. So our stage one's isometric for that tendon, but the rest of the kinetic chain. Stage two is about strength. So concentric, eccentric, and really restoring the strength in that muscle, but also um, making sure you've addressed all the other deficits, which is why it's so individual, because some people will have had a past history of an ACL. Someone else would have had an ankle injury. So there's no recipe. It's about the person in front of you and their deficits. Then stage three and four are about teaching that person and that tendon to be springy again. And that amount of spring, again, is really individual. If you want to be able to just walk around without pain and you know occasionally play sport that's very different to an elite athlete so for a recreational person they're um, stage three and four which is our energy storage and energy storage and release that might involve energy storage that's really functional like walking up and down stairs because you need to be able to step on and off a curb and be strong enough but for someone that wants to run the 100 metres in under 10 seconds, it's an incredibly um, different demand. So our stage three and four exercises will involve lots of really sports-specific um, stuff to give that person whatever they need. Why are isometrics so effective in reducing pain? <laughs> That's a really good question that I wish I had the answer to. Um, I don't know. Now, I think there's a couple of really interesting discussion points around isometrics. You can look at the research in isometric activity in people without any pain, and there's good evidence that they have a widespread analgesic effect. Um, so there's something about a low level isometric 
um, similar to aerobic exercise, maybe some sort of endorphin release, we feel a bit better. We have different or we have lower pressure pain thresholds, high pressure pain thresholds. Which way does it go? You know, you have less pain. Okay. So that's what we see in normal people. Then we have this really interesting case of people with fibromyalgia. And if you have fibromyalgia and you do an isometric exercise, you actually have more pain. So it has the opposite effect on your PPT. So you feel worse with isometric exercise, which again speaks to it being some sort of descending inhibitory kind of process. So we have that and that's really interesting. And then we go to something like uh, patellar tendon pain, which is what I looked at. And I pilot tested the isometric exercise intervention for 18 months. And I started with very low load isometrics and I found that they, they weren't effective for analgesia. They, they just weren't affecting people's pain. They'd get off and they'd get a very similar pain score than their pre-isometric. So I was using a single leg decline squat as the pain provocation test. And then I tested really, really heavy isometrics. So 80, 90, 100% of their maximal voluntary contraction. So you can't hold it for very long, um, but it's not painful for tendon. But again, they weren't getting analgesia. So for 18 months, I worked in time under tension and load. And if you do what is considered a heavy isometric, so around 70% of your NVC, you can hold it for about 45 seconds before you get fatigue. And we found that five of those substantially reduced tendon pain. But again, what's really interesting is if you had tendon pain on both sides, you didn't get a bilateral response. So it's different to the mechanism or we hypothesize it's different to the mechanism we see in people without pain where they get a small analgesic response that's widespread there's something going on at a tendon or kind of um, pathway level because you don't get a widespread inhibitory response you need to actually load that tendon so i've had this question before if i have patellar tendon pain can i do a bicep isometric it won't help if you have patellar tendon pain on both sides, can you just do one leg? You'll only get pain relief on that side. So how does it work? I've not answered your question at all. We have no idea. There's, some, there's something going on um, that appears to be a little bit important from a local level, but clearly the brain's involved. Does the exercise that you're doing to load it matter? How we do the isometric? Yeah, yeah good question. From a research perspective, we don't know. I can answer from a clinical perspective of what we've played around with. Um, and actually, we have a little bit of research for this. We, for example, in the patella tendon, our go-to would be the leg extension because we can isolate out the quad and we can get a really nice heavy load on it. We've also used the, the isometric squats. So the angle bassus um, uses a seatbelt or like a, a belt that goes around a pillar. And even though it's double leg, as the person squats back, it's really, really challenging for the quad. So it's a fantastic option for people to use. So we try and isolate out the exercise if we can, but we do have options. Um, to answer your question, does the exercise matter? I think it does. We often have people come and say, oh, I've done a wall sit and it didn't really help, or I've just been tightening my leg with no resistance and it hasn't helped. And so one of the things that we frequently see is that the load hasn't been heavy enough. So I think the exercise does matter, but specifically how you do it, I've been asked about 45 versus 40 versus 60. I don't think that matters, to be perfectly honest with you. I think it just needs to be comfortable. So you said that with 
heavy isometric with any type of tendon injury that that shouldn't hurt. So if someone does that and it does hurt, does that mean that they don't have a tendon pathology? That's a really good question. So the way I want you to think about tendons is like a spring. And when you do something fast, that's hard for a tendon or when you squash the tendon and it is under compression, it's, it's painful. So if you're doing a static load, and this is how Jill and Craig first came up with the clinical use of isometrics is that it's not it's not hard or painful for a tendon because it's static and it's out of compression so clinically what we see and this is what we found in the research is that people might have some discomfort in the first one or two but it's very low level but they should feel immediately better afterwards so what we need to do with our research and even our clinical reasoning is to apply an intervention and then look at whether or not that has or hasn't helped that person to really aid in our decision making. From a clinical perspective, you can argue that some conditions, for example, a patellofemoral joint, a really grotty patellofemoral joint, really won't like a heavy leg extension. So if I put someone on a leg extension machine and I put on a, a heavy weight and they have increasing pain that's spreading, my clinical reasoning would be to change that exercise. Now, what we call that diagnosis may not matter for us because I've clinically reasoned to do a different exercise for that person. But what we know is that patients like a diagnosis and so that can be where we can get into trouble about what we call it. But I'm, I'm very pragmatic. Does this help? No. What's, what's my next step? So in terms of protocols with isometric versus eccentric versus yeah. heavy, slow resistance yeah. training, what works best? What I would say is nothing works in isolation because you cannot apply the one protocol to every person. Every person is so different, what they came in with, what they want to be able to do. So those things all have a role. Isometrics might be effective at the start. Do we give it every time? No. You know, it's so individual and the person can't stop there because that's never going to restore their function. But equally, if I have um, someone with a lot of wasting and I give them an isolated eccentric program, just dropping them off a step just for their calf, but they have, you know, a knee issue on the other side, that's, that's equally as kind of short-sighted. So the answer is we use all of those things. We use heavy, slow resistance. It's fantastic, you know, concentric, eccentric, restoring that capacity, eccentric is a critical component of rehabilitation because we use it in athletic function. What we don't do is, is take a protocol from any, any kind of recipe and just give it to everyone that we see, but they all have a role. Do you think that like, strength equipment such as weights are important with rehab for someone returning to a sport like running where they don't normally do that strength training? Yeah, that's a really good question. We get this a lot. How important is the gym? And again, it really depends on that person's aspirations. So there are a lot of people that we can really rehabilitate at home and that's going to be completely sufficient for their needs and their goals. If someone wants to be able to do something very athletic, we need to get them strong enough to be able to absorb the, the load and really deal with the rate of loading. So that ground reaction force. So, you know, you run, it can be six to 15 times 
body weight loads going through. So um, we'll often say to people that have never done strength training before, especially some of our runners, it's not a cultural kind of thing to do it. We'll look at them and see if we can commit to a short-term period in the gym and often what happens is they feel it's improved their running efficiency and they often stick with it. But if they don't want to, that's okay too. But we need to address their deficits and often that will involve some additional weight that's difficult to get at home and difficult to be really systematic with at home. So things like TheraBands are really variable in the load and they can upset tendons a bit, so we stay away from them. How do you monitor tendon load clinically? Yeah, good question. So clinically, we look at their 24-hour response to the load we've given them the day before. So, And we do that with a tendon load test. And our tendon load tests are different depending on our tendon. So the Achilles, a classic hallmark sign, is that morning pain and stiffness. So we might get someone to measure... Um, how long they have morning pain and stiffness for. Um, it might be a hop test if it's um, you know a higher level athlete. The decline squat is a good option for our patella tendons for our daily test. The hamstring can be an arabesque. You know, there's lots of different options. It can be it can be a bridge, but we need one test that's appropriate to that person's level that we can really appreciate how they're going. We also get them to give us an idea of their pain in their sort of everyday life. So if it's the elbow, for example, picking up the kettle is a great one. They'll often do it several times, you know, a day, and they can really monitor how their tendon's going in response to their load. What we need is tendons that are tolerating the load. So we need our pain to be low and stable, ideally zero, but definitely not fluctuating or going up. If it's going up, it tells us that what we did yesterday was provocative. So how much pain are you okay with people experiencing when they are exercising and moving? I'm okay with what they're okay with because what I don't want to come in and tell is to tell them what they should be putting up with because it's so variable. You know, you have athletes that are prepared to put up with a lot of pain in some situations and that might be appropriate. For some people, they're, they're, they're very uncomfortable with it. So what we try and do is educate them that this is not damaging. They're not doing tissue damage. Sometimes their tendon will kind of let them know, especially at the start of activity, but we'd reassure them that we feel very comfortable with them continuing and then seeing how they are the next day. And then that's a much better monitor of how they're going rather than pain during activity. So it's very much a shared decision-making, but a lot of reassurance around the pain not being damaging. So if someone had a resting pain level or was just a bit uncomfortable for them, they did exercise and then the next day it went back down to that, you would be okay with that? Yes, and we would spend a lot of time doing education, a lot of time doing education and explaining all of these concepts around you know, your tendon's talking to you. We just want to help teach you when to listen to it and that their pain stability is really important and that, you know, feeling the same or better the next day is exactly what we're after. And so patient expectations are critical because if people are expecting, you know, zero pain, you know, it's good to have that conversation. 
And if they are feeling worse the next day and they have that higher resting pain level, then you just back off on how much they are doing. Yeah, so we, we teach them, I've got a bit of a smiley face system. And so what I do is teach them that if their tendon pain is the same or better and they've got a smiley face, then what they would do is increase their activity the next time they do it. So an example would be if we get you doing your strength exercises three times a week, but you're also doing some springy type activity. You're, you're good enough to progress to some springy type activity, which loads our tendon. I might start you with some skipping. If I get you to do three lots of 30 seconds skipping and the next day you feel good, your Achilles tendon is the same as it was the day before, you get a smiley face. The next time you did that skipping, I might get you to do three lots of 40 seconds. If you, um, this is my neutral face, so it's two eyes and then a flat line, neutral face. If you're not sure about um, the activity, even from like a cardiovascular perspective or a different injury, if you just think, oh, I don't know, you repeat the session. You don't have to go up. So your next skipping would be three by 30. If you were sore and we just got the load wrong, for whatever reason, we bumped you up too quick, then what I would get you to do is you could actually do a couple of days of isometrics if you were a bit symptomatic. Keep going with your strength training because it won't provoke a tendon because it's slow. And then the next time you do your skipping, I might get you to do three by 20 seconds or three by 15 seconds. So we just modify based on your response to load, but we don't ever have to rest. We've always got a way of loading our tendons and loading our body that just responds to what the tendon's saying, what their body's saying. How often do you suggest that people do that quick movement to keep those tendons recovering? So during rehabilitation, or one of the, the hardest things for tendons is that fast stuff. And so what we suggest is that they have a couple of days between those high tendon loads. And by high tendon load, we need the springy, the energy storage. And so if you have time between that load, you have the opportunity to listen to the tendon. And if you back up a few of those days in a row, you can really blow the tendon up. You can really make someone quite sore. So we recommend a couple of days in the, in the beginning between loads while we're just increasing that person's springiness. But at the same time, some people have to get back to you know, tennis tournaments or multiple loads within a week or multiple loads even within a day. So sometimes that's where you have to eventually take that person's rehabilitation to. But in the early phase, just dip your toe in the water and see how they go. Are there any outcome measures that you use clinically? Yep, so our longer term outcome measures, so a month or longer, um, we would use the visa scores, so the visa A, um, visa P, visa H, visa G. Then there's the um, tennis elbow one if we're looking at the elbow. In terms of the other outcome measures that we use, we would have our daily tenon load um, monitoring. And then we also would as David Butler would say, meet the person at their story, find out something in their life that they aren't doing or aren't doing for as long or you know, something that we can kind of keep an eye on that they might be getting back into. It might be you know, something they really enjoy, it could be walking, anything. And then we have specific outcome measures at the gym that relate to their requirements. So if we have quite a high level athlete or a jumping athlete, we have some requirements based on research 
of where they need to get to in terms of different exercises, so their leg press and their calf capacity, so that we can really progress people through rehabilitation with confidence. We're not sort of going, oh, I hope they're ready for this. You're going in with some confidence that they've got the strength to progress to that springy stuff. Are there general timeframes for recovery? That's the other question we get all the time. It's a really good question. It depends entirely. This is such a cop-out answer, but it depends entirely on that person's start point and what they want to be able to do. If they start off at a very low level in terms of their strength or they've been immobilized, you know, someone's put them in, in a moon boot and immobilized them and they want to be able to do something very, very athletic, we know that we're looking at months in the strength phase we then know that we're looking at a period of time in the energy storage phase if they then need to get back to um, back to back loads we also need time to introduce all of those things so that could be a really protracted rehabilitation that you're looking at months if someone's coming in um, with an acute overload they've got reasonable underlying strength but not too many deficits you're rehabilitating a few things progressing them back in that's much much shorter so we would say there are general guidelines but we'd only give them base after we've done the subjective and objective assessment to give them an idea of how long this will take for them told you it was a cop out (laughs) Uh, it seems like with tendon research there's a lot more with the lower extremity than the upper why (laughs) is that Oh, that's such a great question. This actually, you could argue the opposite in the elbow and some of the QST studies. So there's some interest around, you know, central sensitization and quantitative sensory testing, and there's far more in the upper limb than the lower limb. So Melanie Plilsing has done the first set of work. Actually, there was some Dutch work as well um, from Hans Werver's group looking at the patellar tendon, but there's very little in the patellar tendon and the Achilles tendon when it comes to that. So it depends on what area of the research you're looking at. I think the shoulder is a bit of a minefield of diagnoses, um, that there's a lot going on, and so I'll stay away from it and leave it to much smarter people than me. But equally, the elbow, there could be you know, a lot of different kind of subgroups within the elbow that might be really interesting to tease out. Are the major principles of treating tendons the same within you know, knees, elbows, shoulders? I think the general principles of treating, um, I think there's a lot we can transfer across different tendons, but there's also probably a lot we can just transfer across our whole clinical practice. So what we do in lower limb tendons is the first thing we do is remove the provocative load. And that's why we need to understand load because you can't remove all load because all you do is drop someone's capacity and strength and they get more and more deficits. So we can't just take them out of everything. But what you need to do is understand what loads are provocative. So in the patellar tendon, for example, which we use as a spring to jump and land and quickly change direction, we would remove that as a provocative load but that person if they've got the capacity can run because that's not high patellar tendon load they can certainly cycle and would get them going on their strength training so we would never rest anyone but we would understand provocative load and then we would apply the analgesic load so our isometrics and then we'd provide our progressive load so if you think about it from that concept you can certainly apply that to the elbow Removing the provocative load can be a bit trickier because they have a lot of pain provocation in 
you know, activities of daily living. The shoulder I'm staying well away from. I can talk about biceps if you'd like. Um, But, you know, similar with the Achilles, if someone's got insertional Achilles pain and they've got a lot of pain in bare feet, we'd get them in a nice big heel raise to remove the compression, which is their provocative load. So this concept of removing the provocative load, applying an analgesic load and then progressive load, I think you can nicely apply that to actually lots of different conditions that's what we do as physios isn't it we try and hopefully make their pain a bit better and then rehabilitate them what are your thoughts on braces for tendon injury like a patellar tendon brace or elbow brace good question in terms of adjuncts so braces anything that that person feels helps them in my mind helps them you know, your perception is reality. So if someone does something and they feel it beneficial, then they should continue doing it. Anything that allows them to do their rehabilitation and load that doesn't negatively affect the tendon is completely fine. I think clinically people's kind of feedback is really variable. It would be rare that someone comes in that has found it really useful, but if they do, absolutely no problem with them continuing it. The Dutch looked at taping, for example, and they found that placebo taping and patellar tendon taping were both effective and are both of the same magnitude, but the clinical amount was actually very small. So there was a statistically significant improvement, but whether or not that was sort of clinically relevant was pretty low. But if it feels good, that's fine, completely fine. We recently spoke with Dan Harvey about virtual reality and its use in chronic pain. Do you think that virtual reality can have any use in tendon rehab? So this is my new fellowship. (laughs) So um, I'm really excited about combining virtual reality into research and into different pain presentations and seeing if some groups um, respond differently to other groups because we know that no matter what we do not everything helps everyone so we need to find out what helps certain people and try and have some baseline characteristics that might give us some indication of who that would help clinically I think virtual reality is super exciting and we're just starting to understand how we might use it one of the things I'm really passionate about is combining these techniques with exercise which is similar to what my idea was in my PhD because if we just distract someone from their pain but we've done nothing about their calf capacity, their quadriceps, their glutes, if we've done nothing about actually improving their ability to load, as soon as they take the glasses off they can still have pain walking around or pain jumping. So I think we need to understand you know how complex pain is and how complex individuals are and how we can target target different things to really get a good outcome. So I'm really excited about combining exercise with VR to see if we can change pain and you know make it a bit more interesting as well because most of what physios prescribe is boring as bad shit. Let's be honest. <laughs> so we have amazing people. So the University of South Australia, so Ross Smith, um, Their software guys are incredible and they've written a program where um, you can look at your avatar in the mirror, not your avatar, but an avatar. And what we can do is play around with the gain of what your avatar is doing in the mirror. So we can actually write a program or we can take a particular file, file type from a picture and 
you know, use it as well, which is good because then we can isolate out different questions to know like what's the most effective illusion and how do we immerse people really effectively? Because one of the downsides of putting you in Santorini is if you look down at legs, you don't see your legs. Um, so we know that being kind of the more realistic the, the illusion, the more effective it is. So we've got a couple of home units where you literally click a Samsung or an iPhone into a headset and you're not connected to anything. So you can send someone home with that. So I think the setup that we have with the Oculus that we'll do in here, you know, it's really lab based, but the whole goal of this is the end user, is the patient and the physio at home doing their exercises. You know, even you think of someone, you know, the, the applications are huge, you know, people that we can't get to the gym, you know, people that don't have access. So many of the patients that Jill and I see in clinical practice live in remote Australia. So they come and see us, they're not going home, they don't even have a gym in their town. You know, we, we need exercise-based interventions that are engaging, that actually work, and that, you know, are really accessible for people. What is still unknown in the treatment of tendinopathies? Oh, how long have you got? <laughs> So what is unknown? Most of what you've asked me, how do um, isometrics work is very much unknown. We don't understand the mechanisms. We don't understand the nociceptive driver in tendinopathy. We don't know what causes pain or drives pain. We, we don't know. Everyone's after, um, you know, the treatment. And I would argue there's probably never going to be one treatment for everybody. Even exercise needs to be highly variable. Oh, what else don't we know in tendinopathy? If we can apply, again, all the questions you've asked me, can we apply the same principles to different tendons? Um, we know that there's some variability even between the patella and Achilles tendons. So much we don't know, which, you know, makes for a long, healthy, happy career. Do you think that all of those can be answered? Ooh. So I think that's a really good question. I think at some point in the future, we will have a better understanding of the nociceptive driver in a lot of different musculoskeletal conditions. I think there's a lot of people working in that space and they're very clever. And I think that goes for OA and patellofemoral joint pain. Because bearing in mind, we don't know the driver in those conditions either. Like this is not a tendon thing and we can't image pain, right? So there's a lot of things we don't know about it. And I think at some point we might know that, but then for me, there's still no magic bullet because even if we knew it was, you know, substance XXX, what are you going to do? Just block that and that person can do, you know, three calf rises and they can't hop without pain. You actually still need to address all those other things or, or something else is just going to get into trouble. So I think even though we don't understand the driver, we also need to appreciate a much broader um, approach anyway even if we have some of the answers to those questions there's still never going to be the one injection and where can people find out more about you so the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre website and blog so we put blogs up and we have different links so my VR um, researchers on there they can link to some of our papers um, so Latrobe is probably the best method okay thank you Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.